Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, a major new report offers a stark assessment of the damage climate change is already doing to our planet. We talked to three of the scientists involved with the report about what the future may hold and how there's a narrowing window of opportunity to adapt to and avoid the worst of climate change. We need all hands on deck. We need adaptation and we need mitigation right here and right now. And later in the show, a section of a rocket is about to crash land onto the moon. I talked to a planetary scientist about what he's hoping to learn from studying the collision and the crater it'll leave behind. We'll be very interested to see how big that crater is, the shape of the crater, and how much melting there is. And we talked to one of the conversation's politics editors to hear about what academics have been writing about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. On February 28th, scientists on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, published a stark new warning about the impacts climate change is already having on planet Earth. The IPCC says climate change impacts are already grave, wide-ranging, and in some cases, irreversible. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said he'd never seen a scientific report like it. Today's IPCC report is a netless of human suffering and the damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Last year, in the first part of its latest assessment, the IPCC confirmed that Earth has already warmed by 1.09 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels as a result of human activity. Now in this second part, scientists project a future of droughts, floods, and sea level rise that could lead to mass extinctions and have dramatic impacts on people's health and livelihoods. Putting this report together is a major scientific undertaking involving hundreds of researchers around the world, and we've been lucky enough to speak with three of them for this episode. First, I called up Professor Mark Howden. He's director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. He's a vice chair of the IPCC, and he's been working on climate change for 34 years. Mark's been very involved in the latest IPCC report, including helping to select its authors, reviewing the chapter on Africa, and co-authored the summary for policymakers. So let's just jump straight in. So this is the uh, report from the Working Group 2 of the sixth assessment report, um, which assesses all the new evidence that's been published since the last report in 2014 on the impacts, adaptation and vulnerability of, of our planet to climate change. Can you tell us broadly what we know now that we didn't eight years ago when that previous report was published about the impact that climate change is already having on our planet today? Well, in that eight years, uh, clearly we have a lot more data. So we've got a much bigger evidence base. Also, in those eight years, we've had a lot more time for climate change to accumulate. So in those eight years, most of the warmest years on record globally have occurred. Uh, We've also seen this massive expansion of extreme uh, climate events uh, with uh, massive fires in Australia and the US and Greece and Chile and Siberia and, and other places. And, and so we've had uh, you know, really significant increase in the sort of uh, number of events to study. And, and this means we've been able to document those extremes much more effectively and understand the climate change drivers behind them. And we've also enhanced the capacity to do what we call event attribution. So that's when a big event occurs, like the northwest um, US heat wave, 
uh, it's assessing how likely this was to happen in the absence of climate change versus with climate change. So we can get a much better handle on what sort of influences we're having on Earth. And what are some of the impacts that it's actually having already on our, on us, on species, on, on human systems, on, on people's health? What are you telling policymakers that, that the scientific evidence is saying? Well, there's about a thousand pages in this report covering that. And so it's a, it's a massive uh, topic in its own right. Um, but in terms of the climate itself, what we're seeing is as the temperature goes up, we're seeing a lot more temperature extremes. So uh, just the nature of, of the statistics means that small increases in average temperature result in large increases in the frequency of extreme events. And so we're seeing those extreme events rolling out, things like those massive heat waves that we've seen, um, and mortality events in people due to those heat waves. We've also seen changes in rainfall patterns, uh, changes in rainfall seasonality, and we've seen uh, changes in rainfall intensity. So as the atmosphere gets warmer, it can hold exponentially more water. And so when it rains, it tends to rain in much bigger dumps, so we get increased rainfall intensity. We've seen a drying of the atmosphere in many places, so the relative humidity has dropped, which means that the potential evaporation rate has gone up. Um, and that means that, our, for example, our irrigation is less efficient because the, the demand, the atmospheric demand on that moisture is greater. We've seen an increase in variability of climate. So, for example, our El Nino-La Nina uh, variance has actually increased, not so much in frequency but in terms of strength. And so, for example, right now here in Australia, we've got massive floods occurring in eastern Australia, um, which often occur in La Nina years, but but this is in a pretty much a record event uh, and that's likely to be enhanced because of the temperature increases from climate change. And in some places we've seen increased drought. So, so for example, central Chile is essentially now in a permanent drought state um, and so, uh, you know, moved from a relatively wettish climate to a very dry climate. So those are just some of the things that we're observing in the climate system. And then, of course, that translates to all sorts of other things, whether it's, you know, breakdown of the Greenland ice sheet because of, um, you know, melting and, and now rainfall on the ice sheet, uh, whether it's agriculture being pushed backwards because of climate change, so not being able to increase our yields as quickly as we otherwise would. In some places, rivers um, drying out. In some places, um, floods becoming much more frequent. And so we see you know, pretty much a direct translation from those climate changes into impacts of all sorts across the globe. Okay, and it's also having an impact on on species and, and their ability to live in the places that they used to. Oh, indeed. And so um, we're already seeing, you know, various species going extinct because of climate change. Uh, here in Australia, um, a, a little rodent-type creature which used to live in the Torres Strait, that's the water between Australia and Papua New Guinea, there's some very low-lying islands there and those islands have gone underwater and so that uh, little animal which only existed on that one island has gone extinct. And so, so it's the first uh, definitively recorded mammalian extinction due to climate change. Mm. Okay. The report works on different timescales, so it's got short, medium and long-term views of, of what's going to happen. Um, one thing I picked out was that, the, that you and your co-authors set out that 
Children aged 10 or younger in the year 2020 are projected to experience a nearly fourfold increase in extreme events under the 1.5 degrees of global warming scenario. And now we should mention that that's what was agreed in the Paris Agreement in 2015 as kind of the target for to keep global warming at 1.5 degrees. Um, but that could increase to a fivefold increase under three degrees of warming. Can you talk us through what kind of what that means for the future of, for our descendants and what are the scientific predictions could we see by the end of this century, um, even under a 1.5 degree scenario? Yeah, well, you're right. Um, so that's the best case scenario. So we're, we're very likely, I think, now to exceed 1.5 degrees, even if temporarily. And the worst case scenario, of course, is, is much, much worse than that. So many of our existing systems um, are designed to cope with the occasional extreme event. And those extreme events are essentially defined by our historical record. So we have what we call one in 100-year floods, for example. So it's a flood level which you'd only expect to experience once every 100 years on average. And so many of our, our systems are actually designed to deal with that sort of extreme. But they're not designed to deal with extremes which come a lot more frequently and a lot more severely and that's the challenge here. And so when we, the example you point out that um, a, a kid born today will actually potentially have three times as many extreme events in their lifetime as, as for, for example, I would. And, and so the lived experience of people will be much more disrupted. Uh, it will be much uh, poorer because extreme events cost a lot of money to recover from. Uh, and I think It'll be a world where um, danger is more present than it is currently because of this factor. So I think it's quite a profound change when we sort of see a factor of three or four or five increase in extreme event occurrences within a lifetime. So, of course, that's only part of the picture. Um, Not only will extreme events uh, increase, but also things like sea level rise. So even if we put a cap on greenhouse gas emissions where our sea level is, is likely to go up, Uh, at 1.5 degrees by at least half a metre by the end of the century and and it will keep on going for centuries after that as well. And and it could actually be more than that because those estimates don't include some of the things like rapid ice sheet breakdown and ice cliff instability. And and a half a metre will impact seriously on many, many people across the globe, whether you're in a a low-lying small island, uh, whether in a a low-lying coastal area in Indonesia or Thailand or China or Bangladesh, um, that half a metre will fundamentally change uh, the ability to survive and live safely and productively in many different parts of the world. You were involved um, in reviewing the Africa chapter of the report. Can we just dive down into a minute for that and and look at what particular predictions we might know about what will happen to the ecosystems on the African continent, say, by the end of the century? Yeah, well, you know, Africa is is likely to suffer um, particularly badly from climate change uh, because it's the the existing you know, poverty and disadvantage and uh, depleted state of the institutions, the um, governance arrangements within Africa um, interact with um, changes in climate uh, to, to cause really significant challenges. So, of course, there's um, the existing ones, which we're probably fairly aware of, you know, that there's often food security challenges and and they're likely to increase. We're likely to have water availability challenges in various places within Africa, Uh, increased flooding in many um, parts of Africa because of that change in rainfall intensity that I talked about. And so almost everything in Africa 
becomes more challenging because of climate change. Would you say that it's the continent that's the most affected? At a continental scale, um, certainly it, it ranks up there, but um, it's, it's sort of hard to, to do a, um, a, a ranking in that way because every continent in its own way is, is very significantly affected by climate. And uh, the big uh, insurance location for climate change damages at the moment is, say, the US. So it's actually you know, North America. If you look at Australia, we've been hit seriously hard by climate change and expected to continue that. If you look at Asia, um, almost every year has massive damage from, from climate um, events such as typhoons and, and floods and similar things, and that's going to go up. So, so rather than sort of thinking about a ranking thing, I think we have to think pretty much everywhere is at increasing risk from climate change. It's just that some people start from a different baseline and some places start from a different capability level to deal with it. So one of the other things that the report is talking about is whether what we're seeing already is irreversible or not. And you and your co-authors say that some of the rise in weather and climate extremes has actually created irreversible impacts. Can you explain what some of those irreversible impacts are? What will we not be able to fix? So we can think about irreversibility in two different ways. Um, One is irreversible full stop and the other is irreversible within human timeframes. So if we think about irreversible, full stop, um, an example would be species extinction. So in the absence of things like Jurassic Park technology, um, once a species has gone extinct, it's extinct. And so uh, we've already seen examples of that, as I mentioned before, and we're likely to see a lot more over the coming decades, uh, even if we do keep temperatures down to 1.5 degrees. Then there's changes which are essentially irreversible within human timeframes. So, for example, the rapid breakdown of the Greenland ice sheet and parts of Antarctica, the West Antarctic Peninsula, and and also glaciers in many parts of the world, that sort of impact is likely to go on for centuries or even perhaps millennia, even if we do limit climate change. So once it's gone, it's gone for a long, long time. But feasibly, it could come back if we actually take um, temperatures you know, back down uh, to pre-industrial levels and we, we go back to um, sort of normal cycles of ice ages. So to all intents and purposes, it's irreversible. We also have potential uh, irreversibility associated with the what's called the thermohaline circulation, which is the big ocean currents that keep Europe warm and, and transport um, water up up to you know the UK and Ireland uh, and so so you get the Gulf Stream and similar sort of names for that and uh, and so that's part of a global circulation pattern and what we're already seeing is that's weakening uh, because of climate change and it may weaken further uh, because of climate change and that sort of idea of rapid weakening of the the Gulf Stream was the day after tomorrow movie sort of scenario where you know all of a sudden everything goes awry and uh, and you get you know, freezing conditions across uh, North America and Europe. Um, so we're not really looking at that, but we are potentially looking at a significant weakening of that and reconfiguration of that Gulf Stream. And that, again, that will be effectively irreversible in uh, human timeframes. And, and lastly, um, where you get excess mortality, either of humans or of other species, um, at an individual level, of course, that's irreversible. So, and we're, we're likely to get very significant increases in mortality due to climate change. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for walking us through that. Thanks very much, Gemma. It's a pleasure. 
Mark Howden there at the Australian National University. Climate change is, of course, going to have effects that span the entirety of planet Earth. But one particularly important area of climate change impacts is on water, where it will be and where it won't be in the future. A warming world means water shortages. And the IPCC projects that if the world warms by two degrees by the end of the century, up to three billion people are projected to experience chronic water scarcity due to droughts. The IPCC's report also focuses a lot on adaptation. Adaptation are the adjustments people are already making or have made that can help them reduce the risks they're facing from climate change. To find out more about this, I called up our second expert. My name is Balshir Singh Sidhu, and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability here at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And let me ask you, what role did you play in the latest IPCC report that's just been published? I was a contributing author for the water chapter. Um, Specifically, I was a part of a team of researchers from all across the world that reviewed over 1,800 documented case studies that assessed adaptation to climate change across the world since the previous report that came out in 2014. Okay, and and the report that you've published sets out that actually lots of the adaptation that's been going on is related to water, and there's lots already happening. So tell us about some of the new evidence that you found about how communities are adapting to changes in water availability that's that's caused by climate change. Yeah, as you rightly point out, we found that over 80% of these case studies were water-related, and this underscores the centrality of water um, in climate change adaptation discussions all across the world. And what we found is that most of these water-related adaptations, they pertained to the agriculture sector, partially because agriculture accounts for majority, up to 80 to 90% of our water consumption, and also because it provides livelihood to a large majority of people, especially in developing countries. So the common responses that we observed, they included cropping pattern changes. So, for example, you change your cropping calendar according to water availability as, as climate change affects water availability, uh, people using better crop varieties, better farming techniques. Uh, Irrigation was a big focus of these adaptation strategies, both in terms of expansion and conserving irrigation water. There were some non-agricultural adaptations as well, which included uh, examples like uh, salinity um, resistant tree plantations in Bangladesh or improved urban water management. Uh, or building flood-resilient housing in low-lying areas, uh, among other examples. And and you've actually studied this yourself in India, where you're from. Um, So tell us a bit about that. How how are you witnessing and seeing in your research that the way that climate change is already having an impact on water access in India? Yeah, so my research is focused on India, which is primarily an agrarian society. Um, Agriculture is the biggest employment provider. And we know from our past research, we also know from the first part of this IPCC report that came out last year, we know that temperatures are continuing to rise and Indian agriculture being primarily dependent on monsoon for water is extremely vulnerable to the heat waves, dry spells and short duration rains, uh, which have and will continue to become more prevalent in the future. And this vulnerability is amplified in the rain-fed regions, which account for approximately half of the net zone area in India. 
So for my uh, doctoral research, I built a range of statistical models to uncover the dependence of crop yields on climate change variability. And I investigated both sub-seasonal and uh, seasonal determinants of yield. And we found that nationally, if we average the national impact, uh, rice, wheat, and pearl millet, these were the three crops that we analyzed. Their yields could reduce by up to 5% in the next 30 years for the middle emission scenario. So the, not, not the extreme, but just the intermediate one. Uh, but hidden within these numbers is a strong spatial pattern. Uh, for example, some districts in the biggest pearl millet producing state, Rajasthan, could experience up to 20% reduction. And a big part of that is because these states don't have access to irrigation, so they are at the mercy of rainfall. And as monsoons get more unpredictable, these states will witness uh, larger impacts on their agricultural output. Mm. So real variability, and that's, I guess, something that comes across as well in the report about adaptation to water. It's it's very different in different parts of the world. Yeah, so we know that temperatures are going to rise almost in all parts of the world, but precipitation is, uh, it, it will have more regional patterns. So it could increase in some places, some places could witness reduction in rainfall days, some places could uh, witness an increase in extreme rain events. So over the season, it could seem like there is enough water. But if there's a short-term drought at the start of the season, followed by a flood at the end, it just has big negative repercussions for agriculture. And in India, how are farmers coping and adapting? Uh, yeah, so in, in the review that I was a part of for this IPCC report, we found that most common responses in developing countries, which included a lot of studies from India, they included cropping pattern changes and expansion of irrigation access and, of course, water conservation practices. Um, within India, there is a lot of spatial variability in terms of access to irrigation. So there are some places which have almost 100% uh, irrigation. That is, all farmers have access to irrigation, but in some parts, it's mostly rain-fed. And irrigation has been shown to play a big role in building crop resilience to climate variability. So irrigation expansion is obviously on everyone's mind. Uh, this is all the more relevant for India, where the government also continues to encourage and invest in expansion of irrigation, most recently as a part of its flagship irrigation scheme called uh, Pradhan Mantri Krishi Sinchai Yojana, or the Prime Minister's Agricultural Irrigation Scheme. I did a very preliminary analysis as a part of my research, and we found that in some districts which are currently rain-fed, access to irrigation could actually reduce the yield losses by up to 33%. But then again, there is a caveat attached to that. Water is already scarce and expansion to irrigation is contingent on availability of that water. So we know that in northwestern part of India, which is highly irrigated, we grow uh, rice in the summers and we irrigate it using groundwater. And that part of the country has become a global hotspot of groundwater depletion. So we can't continue to depend on irrigation and hope to adapt to the climate change that is happening and will continue to happen into the future. In your big overarching review, were they predominantly strategies that were employed to deal with water scarcity or were there also strategies being employed to deal with kind of flooding and, and excess water? Yeah, a large part of these uh, studies did pertain to water scarcity because that is a major issue in agriculture. And it, it also stems from the fact that a large portion of adaptation strategies are reactive in the sense that there's a drought in certain part of the country in a certain year. And then 
the local farmers and communities, they come up with strategies to deal with that. So instead of being uh, forward-looking, they are more reactive in terms of what is happening right there and right then. So these strategies, we would want them to be more transformative rather than just incremental. You know, the current strategies have shorter-term benefits and we want them to lead to more transformative outcomes like farmers in a certain very sensitive part of the world shifting to livelihoods which are less sensitive to climate change. And you must have read through a whole load of different studies from all over the world. Were there any adaptation strategies that struck you as particularly innovative or things that you hadn't heard before or things that you thought, oh, wow, you know, this is really, I'm really impressed by this. Yeah, there, there were many such strategies. Like I was very interested and intrigued by a case study from Sri Lanka. Um, some farmers there, they successfully adapted to a drought in 2014 by practicing Betma. It's a traditional drought management uh, technique wherein the community, people whose land had more access to water, they shared their land with farmers who did not have access to water so they could each have uh, more equitable access to this limited water resource during that drought. So we saw that combining local, traditional and indigenous knowledge with a technical understanding of climate change can lead to the development and implementation of more acceptable as well as successful climate change adaptation strategies. So these strategies are more palatable to the local communities. You've been looking at the effectiveness of these strategies. So did you find that on the most part, the strategies that people are employing to, to adapt, are they working? Um, so we did a review, like I said, we reviewed 1800 articles, uh, most of them pertain to agriculture. But when we started looking at effectiveness, or if those studies had analyzed the effectiveness of the strategies, we found that very few of them did that. Uh, less than 400 of studies had any discussion of effectiveness. So we need a lot more studies into effectiveness, because unless we do that, and we are just throwing darts in the dark. We are, we, are, we are trying different strategies without even knowing if they work. The chapter that you've contributed to basically says that it's unclear whether these adaptation strategies can be effective if the planet warms beyond two degrees centigrade um, after the end of this century. So it feels like, in a way, is it fair to say it's kind of like a sticking plaster, these approaches, and actually they're not going to be enough if not enough is done to reduce emissions? Yeah, for sure. Uh, like you said, beyond a certain point, there's a point of diminishing returns for all these strategies. So we need all hands on deck. We need adaptation and we need mitigation right here and right now. Uh, and of course, this will require a lot more investment in education and capacity building than what we currently have. And um, that is the hope. Thank you very much, Balsha, for sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Jama. Balsha Singh Sidhu there at the University of British Columbia in Canada. The adaptation Balsha has been talking about are largely smaller in scale. But in the IPCC report, scientists have made clear that minor or incremental changes just won't be enough to stop the worst case scenarios. So what's the bigger picture here? What kind of change is really needed? And this is where our final expert comes in. Ed Carr is professor and director of the International Development Community and Environment Department at Clark University in Massachusetts in the US. He co-authored a chapter in the port on what's called climate resilient development. Climate resilient development is about aligning 
efforts to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions to limit climate change, with efforts to adapt to the impacts of climate change that we can no longer avoid in a manner that allows us to achieve sustainable development goals. Okay, so there's two parts there. Mitigate, adapt. Can you explain how those uh, work together in some cases? How that interaction plays out? So you can think of an effort, for example, to mitigate climate change by reforesting an area because that forest will then take up carbon dioxide. However, if you do that in an area where people are currently farming and you take away their livelihoods in terms of farming, that reduces their adaptive capacity, their income, what they might have to allow them to adapt to what's already happening to them. In that way, you could be very successful in terms of mitigation, but do real harm in terms of adaptation. And so when we think about climate resilient development, we want to think about solutions that bring those two things together. You could think about introducing things like regenerative agriculture, which sequesters carbon in the soil, but doesn't require people to stop farming. So then you're going to get a mitigation benefit and you're going to get that adaptation benefit. Uh, I want to talk about the timeline here. Can you just briefly tell us where we're at on that goal of 0 to 1.5 C and what that kind of timeline looks like in terms of adaptation and mitigation? Sure. Uh, the timeline right now is such that at a global scale, we are likely to hit or exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040 and probably sooner. However, Temperature change, climate change more broadly, plays out differently in different places. Polar regions have already seen change well in excess of 1.5 degrees. More tropical regions have seen less of that change. So it really depends on where you are for the specific timeline in terms of those impacts. Uh, our assessment to this point is that while there's been a lot of action taken on adaptation, it is not adequate to meet the demand in front of us right now. We need to scale up the amount of adaptation action. And at the same time, we really need to get much better at monitoring the actions we take, evaluating them, and learning from that exercise so we can better capture the most effective adaptation options out there. And we can pivot and focus on implementing those things in the right places. And impact could be both positive or negative, correct? Absolutely. And so maladaptation is a concept that shows up in this report, and it is a warning to people. Adaptation is not inherently do no harm. You can propose something that's meant to help someone adapt and, for example, in a community, really help one set of people, but ignore the needs of another or even make someone else's situation much, much worse. And that's why we need that granularity of understanding who those people are and what they're experiencing so that we can avoid those kinds of outcomes. Are we going to be able to come up with some rules here? I think we can come up with principles for adaptation, for how we think about it and how we go about designing it and how we go about implementing it. Uh, and so, for example, uh, in this report, very serious attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not at all as buzzwords, but actually as very important components of effective adaptation. Because in the end, how you define something to be a problem depends on who's at the table. If we're not inviting a very wide range of people in the room, including people historically who've not been participating, such as people with indigenous knowledge, local communities, sometimes it's women, other marginalized and vulnerable populations, we don't even hear about their needs and we don't design things to address those needs. Any other principles that you think kind of stand out? 
I think we're finding that a lot of adaptation efforts that work with nature, you know, nature-based solutions, um, very often, but not universally, uh, are, are more effective than a lot of the gray infrastructure work we do. So, for example, restoring a mangrove area along a coast as opposed to building a giant seawall. Not only are those uh, nature-based solutions quite effective at very specific things like presenting storm surge from doing damage, they create uh, co-benefits, like they become a habitat for a species, which then somebody living in that area could go fishing for, and thus you're augmenting livelihoods as well. I would not suggest that it's always going to be nature-based solutions. Sometimes you need a seawall all these natural solutions, but the excitement towards those has not been there historically. So how is that transition going? It's just a process of shifting a mindset here. I mean, in the West, uh, in the wealthiest countries, we've long been trained to, and we long have relied upon believing in technology as a solution and engineering our way out of things. We're coming up on the hard limits for some of those engineering solutions, and we're going to have to start figuring out how we're going to live in this changed world, and nature-based solutions can help us do that. Would you say that for the most part, the solutions are either known or easily findable? There is no question at all. We have the technology and knowledge we need right now to adapt to climate change. The challenge of adaptation and climate change more broadly is absolutely a human behavioral challenge. Um, change is not driven just by technology and policy. It's people and their individual behaviors and their collective behaviors in communities. And you mentioned in a, your piece for the conversation and certainly in a lot of your work that there's kind of two ways change can occur, right? A hurricane destroys a town and then you build it back in a little better way, or you can do that prior. So can you explain those two different pathways to change? Yeah. When we think about climate change adaptation, very often you hear people talking about how expensive it is and how we can't afford it and how this is a big challenge that way. We're already paying for climate change adaptation. Every time we have to replenish a beach, every time we have to rebuild a town that got flooded, every time, uh, and that, by the way, is local dollars, that's, uh, in, that's people's property values, but that's also federal dollars because, of course, it is emergency relief money that comes in. All of that money is being spent in what amounts to adaptation. But it's adaptation that's saying, no, 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 we're going to keep things just as they are. We're just going to keep rebuilding stuff. And guess what? That means we're going to keep showing up and spending money in this same very reactive, very ineffective way. Or we can stop for a minute, look around and make some plans in advance. Decide what is the world we want to live in? What is the community we want to live in? What are the things we want to deal with now? start to plan for those and start to pay for those. The dollars aren't going to be all that different, but the effectiveness really will. And so that's one of my things I would advocate for is much more proactive thinking to make better use of our limited resources as we're moving forward. And just to kind of close the circle here, we're not just talking about building a smarter home or building a better management system. Adaptation means all the stuff, right? It means all the stuff, because everything is linked together, right? If you're going to try to transform how we grow and consume food in this country, that has impacts on our transportation systems, that has impacts on our energy systems, that has impacts on our society as a whole, right? So every time we think about transformation, we're talking about everything together. And that is really challenging. But one thing I keep saying to people is transformation can sound scary, but transformation really for me is hope here. There are lots of things we can do to address what is coming. 
There are still transformative options out there for every part of the world, and there are multiple options for nearly every part of the world. We still have choices to make. So I'm actually excited by the potential for transformation and the fact that we're still able to talk about it. Well, uh, it gives me a little bit of hope and inspiration to hear that someone in your position uh, is looking forward and inspired by that possibility of transformation. So, Ed, uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ed Carr there at Clark University. Mark Howden, Baosha Singh Sidhu and Ed Carr have all written for the conversation about the latest IPCC report. And we've also been publishing a series of other articles analysing different aspects of this hugely significant report. We'll put a link to where you can find them in the show notes. Next, we're leaving the trials and tribulations of planet Earth to hear about something that's about to happen on the moon. A rocket booster is due to crash into the far side of the moon on March 4th. That sounds bad, Dan. Should we be worried about this? No, there's nothing to be worried about. The moon is constantly getting battered by all sorts of stuff. That's what all those craters are from. So a measly little rocket won't cause any problems. But it's actually a really unique opportunity for scientists who study rocky worlds and moons. One of those scientists we'll be watching closely is Paul Hain, Assistant Professor of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at the University of Colorado in Boulder in the U.S. The first thing I wanted to know when I called Paul up was, what exactly is this wayward rocket? So that's a great question that uh, a lot of us would like to know the answer to. So there's two different ideas about what this rocket might be. The first is that it's the SpaceX upper stage for a launch that put the Discover mission into orbit in 2015. And SpaceX has has denied this. And um, instead, the competing theory is that the rocket is actually the upper stage booster for a Chinese mission called Chang'e 5. And that one uh, launched uh, toward the moon. And China has also denied that this booster belongs to them. So right now we're sort of scratching our heads about where this rocket booster came from. The one thing we do know is that it is on a collision course with the moon. So why is the rocket crashing into the moon? Usually when a rocket is launched from Earth, we know exactly what's going to happen to the rocket itself. It, it delivers its payload. The spacecraft goes into either Earth orbit or onto the moon. And the rocket then uh, travels on a relatively controlled trajectory back to Earth. And it burns up in Earth's atmosphere safely. Um, in this case, it seems that that didn't happen. So now the booster is floating out in space. It's on an orbit in the vicinity of the Earth and Moon. And we can tell that based on its, its current trajectory, it will impact the Moon. And we know that for certain. It's going to happen around March 4th. Um, and you can trace that orbit backwards in time to s- sort of figure out where this rocket came from. But then it becomes uncertain at some point. You you run into these problems of trying to, to uh, determine the orbit under these kind of chaotic perturbations from the Moon and, and Earth. And so... It's not possible to know exactly where this thing came from, but it's almost certainly a rocket that was launched from from Earth and probably in the last few years. So the orbits of this rocket and the moon are going to interact on March 4th. And do we know where the rocket's going to land? Yeah, the rocket is going to hit on the far side of the moon, just over the edge from our vantage point on Earth. So 
The impact site is inside a very large crater called Hertzsprung, and the impact point will be uncertain up until the time when we can actually observe the the crater. Okay, so walk me through what we do know about the physics of an asteroid, or in this case, rocket impact. What's going to happen first? What's it going to hit first? What's the surface of the moon like? Take me there. Paint me the picture, if you will. It'll be traveling at about 2.6 kilometers per second, which is approaching about 6,000 miles per hour. Um, So this is what's called a hypervelocity impact. These are the speeds with which objects in space collide. So if you could stand on the surface, you would see this this rocket hitting the, the surface of the moon, which is made up of this loose kind of granular layer we call the regolith. And this is the product of billions of years of impacts breaking apart the rocks on the moon and forming this blanket of material that's that if you picked it up in your hand would be sort of like sand grain sized particles or even finer. Um, the, the very upper surface is more like a, a baking flour material. And so the first thing that's going to happen is this rocket will make contact with that upper surface of this fine grained powdery material and it'll start to compress that layer. Um, now, as it compresses that layer, the rocket itself will also be compressed. So you can imagine at these speeds, the shock of that impact will travel up the length of the rocket incredibly fast. In fact, it's gonna be going faster than the speed of sound, and that's what creates a, a shock wave inside the rocket. Um, so the shock wave travels through the rocket, it compresses the regolith, and sends a shock wave downward into the lunar surface at the same time that it's it's breaking apart the, the rocket. Now, as the regolith layer is compressed, it's also being heated to unimaginably high heats, thousands of degrees, which are high enough to actually vaporize the, the rock and the regolith. And so there, if you could stand there and watch it, you would see a flash. It would be a, a bright flash that would be the ignition of, of the vaporization of, of those rock fragments as, as the rocket um, sends that shockwave downward. Then the regolith starts to form a, a crater. And so the, the impact will then start to send flying all these bits of debris from the regolith layer uh, into space and that will excavate a crater at the same time that the rocket is being obliterated. And that crater will form over time scales of a few milliseconds up to seconds as the the projectile is is penetrating into the the regolith layer. So uh, this sounds basically like a really exciting explosion. What will this look like once the dust settles? It will be a big explosion, there's no doubt. Once the dust settles, you'll see a big crater. And this the size of that crater is unknown. The size of the crater that's produced depends on the, the details of the, the physics of that crater formation process. And that's one of the things that we're most interested in. So you'll see this kind of bowl-shaped depression in the, in the lunar surface that's excavated all of this loose material in, in the regolith and scattered it over the surface. So you'll see what's called an ejecta blanket. And that's the, the material that was removed from that crater being deposited back on the surface to distances of kilometers away. So we'll be very interested to see how big that crater is, the shape of the crater, how far that material gets gets sent onto the lunar surface, and also how much melting there is. I mentioned that the rocks get heated up to their vaporization temperature. Most of the craters on the moon are observed to have some uh, melted rock in their bottoms. And that amount of melted rock 
also tells us about the physics of the impact process. How are we going to try and find this? Are we going to be able to watch it in real time? It looks like no one will actually see this event in real time. The NASA Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter will gradually move towards the impact site in its orbit around the moon. And we will observe that crater after the fact, but that won't happen for a few weeks after the impact. And so the first view of this crater will be you know, well after the, the dust has settled, so to speak. And there's still a slight chance that we might be able to detect the glowing hot crater smoldering with, with heat left over from that impact. That's something that I'm, I'm holding out hope for. And from there, what cool science are we hoping to do? Yeah, so I really consider this to be a control experiment on the LCROSS impact, which was a planned impact in 2009 of the upper stage of the Centaur rocket that launched the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. That experiment was called LCROSS, and it was mainly intended to detect ice at the poles of the moon, which it did. So it was highly successful. And so what I'd really like to do is to study how this impact crater looks in comparison to what we think we know about the LCROSS impact crater. And we think we know that that LCROSS impact crater was two to three meters deep. We think it was roughly 20 meters across. Um, But again, we don't have great observations of that crater because it happened in the dark. And so this one being roughly the same size of impactor, the rockets aren't too different in size and roughly the same velocity, those impact energies you know, should produce a crater very similar to the one that, that LCROSS produced. So I think from my perspective as a planetary scientist, that's what I'm going to be looking at is how close were we in our predictions uh, for how big this crater should be compared to how big it actually is. And this is important for knowing how much of the ice that LCROSS detected at the moon's south pole came from deep under the subsurface versus very close to the surface. So how deep that crater excavated tells us how deep the ice might be buried at the poles. I mean, it sounds like if you're trying to build the grand theory of moon impacts, uh, this is going to be a really important moment for that that goal, right? I think so. I think this will provide information that that is really unique. And especially if we can figure out what this <laughs> what this pesky rocket actually is, that'll help us a lot. Uh, but regardless, we know enough about the the rocket and its trajectory to you know to be able to make some really solid predictions about what kind of crater should be formed, and then compare that to our models. So the fact that this kind of experiment doesn't come along every day means that we should really take advantage of the opportunity to study the impact process in more detail. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing your time and wonderful insight with us. And uh, I hope to speak with you again in a couple months once we start getting some cool results back. Sounds great. I'd love to. Paul Hayne there. You can read a story by him on theconversation.com. We'll throw a link in the show notes. Elsewhere on The Conversation this week, we've obviously been closely following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I called up Jonathan Est, international politics editor for The Conversation based in Cambridge in the UK, to understand what some of our experts have been saying. Hi there, Jonty. Hi, Gemma. Okay, I know it's been a really busy week for you and and a very deeply worrying week um, covering the invasion of Ukraine. So what's stuck out for you from the analysis that you've been editing in in the past couple of days? Well, of course, we've been reporting this troop build-up for a couple of months now. And 
And, you know, listening carefully to what Vladimir Putin has been saying, especially his insistence that Ukraine and Russia are, are basically the same country, which he keeps saying. We published a piece by Olivia Durand. She's an Oxford historian. And it basically debunks what Putin had to say about modern Ukraine basically being created by Bolshevik Russia. Um, traces the establishment of Ukrainian state back before that. And it talks about Ukraine's national aspirations going back hundreds of years. It's a really interesting piece. OK, we'll definitely check that one out. And that history is so important to understand what's going on right now. What else have you been working on in terms of the, the war itself and, and the, the Ukrainian army? Well, obviously, we've been keeping a you know close eye on this in real time. And, and, and a piece we published on day two of the invasion, which has actually proved pretty prophetic, was from Frank Ledwidge. Now, he's an expert on military strategy from Portsmouth University, um, a former military intelligence officer who spent considerable time in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and he knows the terrain there. And he predicted that while on paper Russia's got an overwhelming superiority in terms of troops and equipment, Ukraine's defenders are motivated, they're prepared to fight a protracted war in defence of their country. Of course, things change rapidly, uh, but we've been seeing that scenario playing out in the streets of Ukraine's cities already. And what other analysis has been happening from around the world on the conversation? Yeah, well, we're really lucky to have a global network. It means we can pool our resources and access researchers all over the world, basically, to cover this from all angles. I've been particularly interested in the story by a historian from the University of Michigan in the US, uh, a chap called Jeffrey Weidlinger. Um, and it puts to the test Putin's claim that Russia's aim in invading Ukraine is to denazify the country. Now, this is a country which elected Volodymyr Zelensky, He's a Russian-speaking Jewish politician as their president. And Weidlinger points out that modern Ukraine is a vibrant and pluralistic society. It's the only country besides Israel to have had a Jewish president and prime minister at the same time. And he quotes Zelensky saying, how can I be a Nazi? Tell that to my grandfather. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so thanks, John. We'll put some links to those stories in the show notes and good luck as you continue to cover this, this story. Yeah, thanks, Gemma. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. Thanks to the conversation editors, Stacey Morford, Will De Freitas, Anthea Batsakis, Hannah Hogue and Jack Marley. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion and Katie Francis for help with our transcripts. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. Don't forget to sign up for our free daily email either. There's a link in the show notes. If you enjoy The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever you can. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you for listening. <laughs>